listening to Latin Experts, a podcast of Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Latin Experts features the voices of faculty, staff, and students, as well as friends and alumni of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies, the Latino Research Institute, and the Center for Mexican American Studies. Join us for this episode of Latin Experts. Episode 19, what role should faith-based organizations play in serving Latinx communities? I'm your host, Karma Chavez, and this is Latin Experts. As part of our series featuring researchers affiliated with the Latino Research Institute, our guest today is Dr. Ruven Para Cardona, an associate professor in the Steve Hicks School of Social Work and the area director for research at the Latino Research Institute. His research crosses international borders and addresses issues of family, parenting, and community partnerships. In a recent short essay that Dr. Baracardono published with colleagues in a supplement to the Stanford Social Innovation Review, they argue for the importance of faith-based organizations in taking leadership roles in implementing physical and mental health care initiatives. The article contends that, to date, the field of implementation science or the study of methods and strategies to promote the uptake of interventions that have proven effective into routine practice with the aim of improving population health has been woefully ineffective in accounting for disparities and discrimination faced by marginalized groups such as Latinx immigrants. The authors offer one example from their own work with a parenting program to make a case for the need to consider faith-based groups as vital implementation partners. So, Dr. Baracardona, welcome to Latin Experts. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here today, and I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Well, we're excited to have you here. And I guess I'd like to just ask you if you'd start out talking a bit about what your role entails as area director for research in the LRI. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a very fascinating role because basically my function is to support the director in the research objectives of the Institute. We have a wonderful team of researchers already affiliated uh, with the Institute as their primary appointment, but also very important to engage researchers in the U University of Texas at Austin community and, and abroad into the mission of the LRI. So it's basically uh, promoting the research agenda, but a research agenda that is strongly focused on integrated the best science, cultural relevance, and social justice. Well, and that ties in very much with your piece that I want to discuss with you today. And I'll start out and say, I'll be honest, that as a humanities scholar, I had no idea that there was a science of implementation. And I defined it briefly in my intro, but can you say more about the significance of implementation science? It is really big. Those of us in intervention, it can be clinical intervention when you have a clinical problem, let's say depression, anxiety, that you want to eliminate that problem. That would be more clinical research. But you also have prevention research, right? Which is the line that I personally implement. That means that you really want to minimize the risk, for example, adolescents getting into substance use and misuse. Now, we have tremendous, wonderful science about clinical interventions and prevention interventions. Very rigorous, randomized trials that have been conducted for years. So, we have the science of how to help people, 
when they are facing uh, these challenges and how to prevent these challenges from happening. However, we have two major challenges. One is that the most frequently diverse populations, low-income populations, those with few resources, have very few opportunities to access those interventions. That's one first step challenge that we have, right? If you don't have private insurance, if you don't have the capacity to pay out-of-pocket sessions, that puts you in a very, very critical disadvantage. The other one is when those interventions are delivered, it can take um, anywhere from seven to 12 years to get to the people that need it because of the multiple barriers in systems, right? So we have these wonderful interventions, but how do you get it to the communities that need them the most? So implementation science is a science about how do we address these conundrums, these, these wonderful interventions, but that are not accessible by the people who need them the most. So there's a whole science about how to go about delivering these interventions to populations and shorten that gap that I was telling you about seven to 12 years. And I'm going to guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that historically that science hasn't taken into account issues like culture and race to the extent that might actually be beneficial to those communities. Is that fair to say? Absolutely fair to say. Absolutely. When I first got funded back in 2009 with my first uh, grant from the National Institute of Health, there was actually a debate that was called the culture adaptation debate. On one hand of the debate, there were the developers of interventions who said, you know, we have these wonderful interventions that work, efficacious interventions. We don't need to change them. And we're already implementing them in schools with kids from all cultural backgrounds. So there's really a high risk to modify the interventions and make them lose the way they work. On the other hand of the debate, you had ethnic minority scholars saying, wait a minute, that can be scientific imperialism. These interventions were originally developed mostly with your American population, uh, U.S. citizens. Populations that are not uh, experiencing the stressors that Black, African-American, Latinx, immigrant communities face on a daily basis. So we truly run the risk of running into scientific imperialism. So there was a big debate at the time. And since then, we have had several scholars demonstrating the importance of culturally adapting those interventions according to the cultural values, cultural traditions of diverse populations. And cultural adaptation is a whole field by itself, just like implementation science. Cultural adaptation has to be rigorous in order to incorporate in a very thorough way cultural values and tradition. It's just not about translating materials or making sure that the visual images represent the focus population. It's, it's really working with communities in ensuring that interventions are truly relevant to their life. It reminds me of something from my own research. Uh, when I, So I just finished a book that's about HIV during the early years of the pandemic. And one of the things that I learned about in doing that research was that in the early late 80s, early 90s was sort of the first time the federal government had said that they would be uh, giving grants to these organizations who could help to do prevention around HIV. And it was very clear early on that farm workers were one of the most struck groups And so they were looking to see, you know, some of these organizations, was there anything published in Spanish already? And they found, of course, in San Francisco that there were 
some strategies to address the urban Latinx population in San Francisco. And so originally they took these directly to farm workers and, you know, the language was right, but it didn't make any sense for them given their context. Absolutely. Absolutely. According to the, you know, if you are working 12 hours in the field, if you're exposed to pesticides, if, you know, and then you come with these things about, okay, put your kids in timeout when you don't have your own place. So it's, it's a perfect, and, and it happens. It happens. And so cultural adaptation is a very, very painstaking process. It's a multi-year process. But we know, we know that cultural adaptive interventions really make a difference in the lives of people. The problem, again, is even perfect cultural adapt- adaptive interventions don't get to the people that need them the most. And that's where integrating cultural adaptation and implementation science is so important. So let's talk a little bit about this case study uh, from this piece you co-wrote. So you talk about the creation of a culturally adapted parenting intervention in partnership with San Jose Catholic Church here in Travis County. And will you talk then about why you chose the church as your partner and then a little bit about what the intervention itself is? Yes, this goes back all the years of the Obama administration when we first got funded on our first cultural adaptation study. Our focus populations are low-income immigrant communities, and and the families we serve oftentimes have uh, mixed immigration documentation status. So it's very hard for them to go through formal systems of care because many of them don't have social security, don't have insurance. Many of them, what they do is they save money and then they go back to Mexico and take care of their healthcare needs during the summer. And, you know, don't get me wrong, these are populations that it's one of the things about the U.S. economy. If you remove undocumented immigrants from this economy, it would hurt so much because those vegetables that we get into the stores, um, the cables in our cars, um, the motors being assembled, all those are, you know, uh, immigrant populations, many, many of them in undocumented immigration status. So anyway, as a social justice species, how are, what are we doing for these populations that are offering so much to us in an unrecognized way? This uh, feature of the U.S. economy has taken uh, has been long standing. So we started this work first in the in Detroit, but along with that, we have an immigration system that um, needs to be redesigned, reconsidered based on the realities of the U.S. economy. When we first tried to offer parenting groups in schools and community centers, it was very difficult because of distrust. There are other places like uh, Arizona, Phoenix, where you have high concentration of Latinx populations in which um, delivering the interventions at the time was much easier because of the, of the social capital of immigrant population in those settings. In the context where we started Detroit, Michigan, that was not the case. There was a lot of distrust. However, it's very important to recognize that churches historically have been at the forefront of human rights of immigrant groups. In the church where we uh, work, Hollywood Dimmer in Detroit, uh, they had a full immigration clinic. They were extraordinary in uh, being advocates for immigrants. So anything coming from the church was a guarantee of safety for immigrants. So when we moved to offering the parenting program in churches, then our attendance went up the roof and we had a waiting list. And not only that, but um, we had a case management approach. So one of our interventions would refer families to services. So it was not only doing a parenting intervention of our parenting program, 
But if the family didn't have food, were working for an employer who was exploitative, um, we would offer case management services to elevate their quality of life. And since then, we have seen the powerful, powerful way in which faith-based organizations protect immigrant families. And we have corroborated year after year that when you launch these initiatives from faith-based organizations, it provides a layer of trust and safety to families that is critically important, particularly for the most vulnerable immigrant families. And since then, our parenting groups um, are attended by parents who have stable jobs, but also by many parents who are in a position of vulnerability. And so is part of the implication of what you're saying then that previous interventions that might have been focused on parenting really just focused on the parenting piece of this and not the broader context in which parenting exists? Yes, and, and we learn along the way. We, we didn't conceptualize that right away because in the Obama administration, we know immigration policies prioritize arrests of criminals, individuals breaking the law, etc., However, there were some uh, arrests and deportations of families who were un undocumented without engaging in criminal behavior. However, in our second study, when we launched the second study funded by NIDA, uh, we had a transition to the Trump administration and the immigration policies, drastic change, drastic change. So for the first time, we had a race in community we had members of our parenting groups who were arrested for overstays of visa. I mean, stuff that we had never seen. We saw a very, very aggressive immigration stance and policy. But even with that, our retention rate in that study was amazing. It was like 86%. We had a couple of families that were deported. And, uh, but still, families committed to the parenting program because they needed it for their families. But it was as we face more contextual challenges that we increase the case management approach. So we didn't visualize it like that right in the beginning, but as the contextual adversity, as we learn more and more about the contextual adversity our families serve, we increase that arm of the, of the study. So it's not a standard in the parenting intervention world to um, uh, include advocacy along parenting interventions, but now we consider it essential. And just to clarify, you used an acronym of a funding agency, NIDA. Can you just tell us what that is? Yeah, National Issue on Drug Abuse. Our first study was funded uh, to um, examine the impact of an intervention with families with young children, 4 through 12. And our results were really solid. And uh, we presented our results to the National Issue on Drug Abuse and submitted a proposal to expand our program of research to include families with adolescents. So our focus now is the mental health of adolescents, but also the prevention of substance use and misuse. So this is a case study, and it sounds like a case study of part of a huge project that's in many locations with many, you know, many different communities. And one of the things I was thinking though, as I was reading was potentially about some of the drawbacks of working with faith-based communities, um, particularly for LGBTQ migrants, which is what my research is about. And so I was wondering if you could talk at all about how questions related to sexuality or gender uh, have come up in any of this work. You know, I think uh, working with uh, exemplar faith-based communities community, committed to social justice is important. And I really want to highlight our community partners here in um, Austin, San Jose Catholic Church. They have a ministry 
which is a social justice ministry. And, and it stands on its own. When I say stands on its own, is that they have tackled one by one issues of um, social justice. And yes, uh, they are within the Catholic Church and they are part of the church itself. But I have been so impressed by them. Uh, like when we started focus groups to talk with parents about contextual challenges that they face, before we went into the room, they were running immigration deportation workshops. Can you imagine that? I mean, they were giving packets to families and saying, if you get arrested by ICE, this is what you need to think. And they had forms there or, you know, relinquishing parental rights and stuff like that. Stuff that we have not seen in other faith-based organizations. So this to say that your question is highly important. It has not been answered. It has not been fully addressed. But I have a lot of hope in groups within the Catholic Church, such as this social justice ministry, that are aware of the issue and are working on the issue. But they are part of an organization and a faith organization in which they need to have these conversations. So I would say this is a long-term issue that needs to be addressed, but I have so much hope for folks, you know, for the future um, because of folks like the ones we are working with and the social justice ministry is really questioning paradigms and um, advocating for those most vulnerable groups, even within the own church. That's really uh, exciting and encouraging to hear. And one of the places my question came from was, in, I think it was about 2002, the Audre Lord Project. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They're an organization uh, in New York, and they provide a lot of services to uh, specifically LGBT immigrants. And they did this massive study in 2002 that was addressing the question, are immigrant communities more homophobic than your standard U.S. citizen community, whatever that means, of course. And one of the things they found in their interviews was, and this is primarily, this study was related to refugee resettlement, because the vast majority of VOLAGs, volunteer agencies that support refugees in the United States, are faith-based, immigrants actually had adopted, or refugees had adopted the homophobic views of the churches that were helping them with resettlement. Uh, now, this is 20 years ago. And um, and so, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is, one, that their churches have really grown in their progressive politics. Uh, but two, it seems the other implication to me is uh, it's really important to be very careful about the faith-based partner you choose. Yeah, it is because, you know, in both collaborations have been wonderful. Um, uh, the human rights of every parent we have worked with have been uh, truly respected in, in, in so many ways in my own experience, openness to a lot of conversations. You know, in the parenting world, we are just in the phases of integrating the science of parenting and advocacy. So when you talk about LGBTQ rights and all that, we definitely are not in that frontier yet. Uh, but um, I think it's very promising what I'm seeing and the fact that, you know, within the church, you have a, a work of social justice um, ministry committed to the mission of social justice is incredibly inspiring and there are so many examples i can share with you in terms of uh, that they were very innovative and risky uh takers in terms of what they did within you know their scope of intervention and, and work so i feel very hopeful about that well and it seems another implication then of this research specifically thinking about advocacy 
is that churches are in a kind of unique situation, perhaps vis-a-vis other nonprofit organizations, to have advocacy built into their work, whereas they're not bound to just provide services, for example. Is that accurate, or is this just something that's actually quite radical? Yeah, no. And see, uh, see, this is this is what I share with folks that until, uh, ask me, why faith-based organizations? And I tell them because of the commitment of people. The head priest... Um, of San Jose has been extraordinary since day one of providing full support for this initiative. We could have not done this without his support, Father Sandoval Pliego. It was like unequivocal, go for it. And there are many barriers, institutional barriers to get projects like this done. They were all addressed. Then we have um, Ophelia Zapata, Maria Emerson, and other members of the social justice ministry that were completely on board since day one, and they are strong, very strong advocates. So you have that in the in the staff. But something I tell people, that they really need to get out of their preconceptions, because, you know, we liberal people get in our mind, in our heads too much, and detach from reality many times. So the first time that uh, I went to recruit for focus group parenting groups, but they invited me to give the announcement at the 8 o'clock mass on a Sunday, right? So I said, who's going to be there eight o'clock on a Sunday, right? So I get there and you're like, oh, I'm going to get 10 minutes before nobody's going to be there. I couldn't park. I could not find a place to park. And then I walk into the church and it was completely, completely packed at eight in the morning with full families and families with young children, adolescents, everybody dressed up. And it was like a smack on my face to say, you liberal Ruben, you're so full of yourself because look at the face of these people. These are the people who are working in the roofs at 105 degree weather in Austin when we're in our offices. These are the people doing landscaping. These are the people who did not quit working during COVID, right? And the place they choose to go in the day that they rest, is that church that is going to give them faith for a better future. None of us can offer that to them. Only that community of faith. At that moment was like, I recognize my not being humble. And I recognize I had to be humble and just to remain in silence and observe the face of people. Because guess what? Who gives you energy to be in a hundred degree weather on the rooftop? is when you think about your family, but also your faith. And that's when I was very humbled by that experience. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually a beautiful place to leave our conversation today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Paracarona. It's my pleasure. And I really enjoyed the conversation. And you are a great facilitator for that. So congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Again, our guest today was Dr. Ruben Paracarona, who is the Area Director for Research at the Latino Research Institute. And I've been your host, Karma Chavez, and this is Latin Experts. Hi, all. This is Ashley Nava Monteros, the Communications Associate at Latino Studies. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out the Latino Studies Instagram page. Follow us at Latino Studies UT to keep the conversation going.